Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. begin our reading with the seventh verse. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands sang with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. To receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne. And unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. At the beginning of the chapter, we had presented once again the throne of God. And the one sitting upon the throne, God the Father, was portrayed as having a scroll in his hand, which is not simply the scroll of history, but more particularly the scroll of God's special providence toward his people, toward his church. And indeed, this is, uh, it has within it the rest of the book of Revelation, what was promised to us from the very beginning of the book. But you remember the problem. The book is portrayed as being sealed, completely sealed, perfectly sealed with seven seals. And a call came out from a mighty angel. Is there anyone worthy to break the seals, to open the book and to read and reveal the contents of the book? No creature is found. And John mourns, longing to see and to know the contents. But the elder admonishes John 
tells him not to weep and does declare that one has been found worthy. But no mere preacher, Jesus Christ the righteous, fully God and fully man. And we then have a very large portrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ in a very few words. He is indeed God upon the throne. He is also fully man, slain like a lamb, crucified for sins, dead, buried, and risen again. He is as a lamb slain, but one yet standing upon the throne and ever living to make intercession for his people and to represent them at the throne of grace. We saw the Lord Jesus Christ, God and man, in his threefold mediatorial office. He is a king, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He is full of horns and full of eyes for the execution of government all seeing so that he might know how to govern and full of horns so that he might have power to govern. He is the priest for his people, a slain sacrifice, the sacrificing priest and the interceding priest on behalf of his people. And he's also prophet. He takes the scroll to break its seals and to reveal its contents to its people. I hope that you are beginning to see two things. John is rightly called by the ancients John the divine or theologian. What a glorious picture he portrays of the Lord Jesus Christ in a very short and compressed space. But even more than that. How glorious is our Jesus as he is portrayed here. And I hope that already your hearts are prepared to worship him, even as all of creation is portrayed as having its heart inclined to worship such a great and such a glorious one. We continue our exposition this morning with verse 7. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. Remember that this scroll filled with uh, the following history of God's special providence toward his church is portrayed as being in the right hand of God the Father. All of these things have been decreed by him and it is significant that it's portrayed in his right hand. Of course, we know that God doesn't have hands, properly speaking. But the right hand is the hand of skill. And this is a providence that has been put together by God's infinite wisdom designed to two principal ends. The first and great end is his own glory. And all of this marvelous tapestry with all of its complexity has been designed to achieve that end. God will be glorified in all. And second, all of this has been designed for the good of his people. God's glory and the good of his people. And when you consider all of the various things that take place in that uh, providence, 
It is indeed a most marvelous thing that he's able to accomplish these ends by infinite means and with infinite variables. This is also the hand of power or strength. Most people are right-handed and the right hand is not only the skillful hand, but it is also the strong hand. He has decreed this according to infinite wisdom and what he has decreed, he will infallibly execute. And there is no power in heaven or on earth that can resist him in this. The Lord Jesus Christ has been found worthy in his person and in his work to make an approach and to take the book out of the right hand of God the Father. Every once in a while you'll uh, hear in our public prayers I'll refer to Jesus Christ as matchless or his matchless name. Here we have an illustration of this. There was no one else in heaven or on the earth or under the earth that made bold to approach to the divine throne and take out the book. Jesus Christ is without peer, without equal, matchless Jesus who does what no other dared to do or could do. He makes an approach to God the Father. He takes the book and he opens it. And how this must have cheered John's grieving heart. This is what he had longed to see. And this is what he had been prepared for from the very beginning. This is really the fulfillment of Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. We have here uh, portrayed symbolically and in vision what had been expressed there um, in a didactic and straightforward manner. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. You see the uh, perfect harmony here. God the Father gives it to the Son so that he might reveal it to his servants, which is what we will see immediately at the turning to chapter 6. The first thing that happens is the first seal is broken. And a voice cries out, the voice of one of the living creatures, and the contents of the scroll begins to be revealed by Jesus Christ to his people. In verse 8, And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them hearts, and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. We learn here that when the Lord Jesus Christ takes the book, when he had taken the book, this becomes a fresh occasion for the people of God to worship. And it's obvious that uh, they recognize that his taking of the book is for their benefit, that he's not simply going to take it for himself. But as he does as a public person in all of his mediatorial dealings, he takes the book not just for himself, but for the good of all his people. They understand that the contents are now to be revealed by him. And their expectation is not disappointed. 
when we come to the sixth chapter, the contents of the book. The future of the church will begin to be revealed. But before that happens, as it were at the mere thought of it, and in the expectation of it, the people of God worship. You will remember that the four beasts are the ministers of the church, her officers, and the 24 elders, the 24 Priest kings are representatives of all of the people of God. This is the church in a spiritual view. And if you're to understand what we're going to do here in just a few moments, you have to remember that everything that we've done up to this point has been a spiritual view of the church. It's as if the uh, inner spiritual life of the church has been uncovered for John. Things that are normally hidden from the eyes of men, things that men cannot detect with their physical eyes and ears have now become apparent to John. And so you have these four living creatures, representative of the ministers of the church, calling upon the people of God to worship God. And in response, the people of God, the 24 elders, do. And all... The beasts and the elders immediately assume that proper attitude of worship. They fall down before him. There is only one frame in which we are to worship this great being, and that is in an attitude of humility. If you turn back to Revelation chapter 4, we have already seen uh, this, and we considered it at some length. I won't... I won't stay here for very long, but Revelation chapter 4, verse 9. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne. You will remember that the four and twenty elders were first portrayed to us as being seated upon thrones. But when the four living creatures call upon them to worship God, they quit their thrones and come down from them as if they will take no honor to themselves when God is to be honored. And they fall down before him, which is the only proper attitude of worship, and more than that, they take the crowns that God himself had placed upon their heads, and they cast them at their feet, as if they were to say that, uh, let any honor that is ever given to us redound to thy honor and glory, for we know we wear no crowns apart from the crowning of the grace that thou didst give, as Augustine did so beautifully say, God gives grace, and then he crowns his grace with rewards, and is it any wonder that the saints in this spiritual view are portrayed as taking off their crowns and placing them at his feet, for he is worthy of the glory of all. We should notice here that when we turn to chapter 5, the people of God are worshiping Jesus Christ as God. 
Nothing could be more plain. Nothing could be more clear. Just as they worshipped God the Father in Revelation chapter 4, they worshipped Jesus Christ in chapter 5. As we go on, we see that the these uh, beasts and elders are portrayed as having been equipped for worship. They are portrayed as having harps and golden vials or bowls that are filled with incense. By God's grace, they have been equipped or fitted for the worship of God something that they did not have natively, something that had to be given to them. If we are to avoid uh, mistakes at this point, we must remember, and our exposition must remain consistent, because at this point there are many mistakes, and this passage has been used to justify many different kinds of worship practices. Within about three weeks' time, we'll we'll come uh, to that more properly. Uh, There's much to cover and uh, in this. Uh, Many issues are raised. But remember, this is a spiritual view of the church. Not something that you could see with the eye or hear with the ear. This is a portrayal of her uh, inner, hidden, spiritual life. And throughout that hidden Spiritual life has been portrayed in what kind of symbols? The symbolism and imagery of the tabernacle and temple. So we should not be surprised to find other temple or tabernacle imagery here. We saw the Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God, opened before us. We saw the cherubs set before our eyes. We saw the 24 courses of priests and Levites that are ever there to attend upon uh, God and his worship. We saw the menorah, the seven-branched candlestick. All of this, golden bowls full of incense and harps, are consistent with that imagery. But remember, all of this is a spiritual view. None of this justifies the reconstruction of an Ark of the Covenant, or a seven-branched candlestick, or uh, the burning of incense, or the resurrection of the harps. But as I said, we'll come uh, to that. It's It's a large and interesting discussion, but at this point, the exposition must remain consistent. As Peter says, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Here John is, as it were, with the eye of the Spirit seeing these spiritual sacrifices before his eyes. Briefly, uh, let us uh, consider the hearts and the vials of incense And I say just briefly, we'll do a summary here, and then in coming weeks we will um, consider these things at some greater length. But first, the harps. It's good at this point to consider once again, what was the literal use of the harps in the temple? 
Obviously, they were instruments of praise, instruments to facilitate praise and to stir up the hearts of God's people. The spiritual significance would be that of hearts that are ready and stirred to praise God. Uh, A couple of passages with which you are well familiar speaking about the songs of God's people under this present and new administration. We are to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. It's Ephesians 5.19. It's a heart that has been stirred by the grace of God and made ready for worship. Also, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Our exposition or our understanding of the spiritual significance of these harps is confirmed by the vials of incense and the interpretation that is given by the Spirit himself immediately. What were the bowls of incense and what was their use uh, in the temple and in the tabernacle? You will remember, uh, and and children, uh, for your sake and so that you can uh, gain some apprehension of this, This this is taught in very tangible terms from the old administration. If you were uh, living with Israel in the wilderness in ancient times, right in the middle of your camp, God would have pitched his tent. It was surrounded by a great courtyard. And that courtyard uh, was surrounded by curtains that were that were um, partially transparent. They were opaque. It obstructed view a little bit, but you could also see through to some degree, what was going on uh, inside. That, uh, that uh, courtyard was about 50 yards long. To help you get some, some sense of the scale here, it's about half of a football field, if you've ever seen a football field. And about 25 yards wide or broad. It could only be entered from the east. So if it was in the morning time, the sun would be at your back and you'd pass through. You'd see a great big bronze altar, and if you walked around that, you would see a great big bronze uh, laver, or like it's a big bowl, a big bowl, basin uh, filled with water, and beyond that was the tabernacle of God himself. God had pitched his tent in the midst of Israel's tent, but his tent was far more beautiful than theirs would have been having been made out of all sorts of costly fabrics. Normally, uh, nobody but the priests could enter there. But God did tell his people what, what was inside. If you entered, and again, you could only enter from the east, on your right hand, you would see a big silver table. And on top of that silver table, you would see 12 loaves of bread, uh, one for each of the tribes of Israel. An image or a shadow of Jesus Christ, who is a rich uh, 
banquet and feast for all of his people. On your left hand side, you would see a big golden candlestick, a big one, probably bigger than you've ever seen in your life. And it had seven branches, so it had a central stalk, and it had uh, three branches that came off of either side, and seven lights, which was a, a symbol of the Holy Spirit, who is the light and life of the churches, uh, bringing light into this place. But most glorious of all, right in front of you would be a, would be a golden altar, smaller than the brass one outside, a smaller golden altar, but it was in front of a, it was right in front of a beautiful curtain. Uh, beautiful, it was uh, linen, so there was white in it. But it also had tapestry work of scarlet and blue and purple. And behind that was the Ark of the Covenant. And only one man, and only once in the year, ever got to see that. <coughs> Our uh, focus right now is that golden altar. In that secret holy place, that golden altar um, had uh, accompanying it uh, golden bowls, which are referenced here. They are incense bowls or uh, also called censers sometimes. What the priests would do, and we'll talk about this more in coming weeks, but the short view is a priest would go outside. He would take a live hot coal off of the brazen altar that had dropped from one of the sacrifices. So on the sacrifice, there's uh, burning wood, and then they've sacrificed an animal. And part of the remains of that, one of these burning coals, they would put in one of these bowls. And they would take it inside to that golden altar, and they would set it on that golden altar. And they would take another bowl full of incense. Basically, it's a sweet, perfumed incense that put off a wonderful smell when it was burned and they would sprinkle it on top of that and then that cloud of incense with all of its fragrance would rise up. From ancient times, the people of God understood the spiritual significance of this, that it was a representation of their prayers. Their prayers made acceptable by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and we should understand that no prayers from a human being, a sinful human being, can ever be accepted by God the Father or be acceptable in His sight apart from a, an atoning sacrifice offered and accepted on their behalf. And there's only one sacrifice that can reconcile us to God, and that's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But our prayers, even with that sacrifice, do not go up alone, but they are put into the hands of a priest and he adds, as it were, a perfuming fragrance that makes it acceptable in God's nostrils. It's portrayed as being a soothing aroma. Uh, you remember that in the book of Hebrews, it says that our Lord Jesus Christ descended into heavenly places where he ever lives to make intercession for us. It's a wonderful thing to think about our prayers in this way. That when we pray, our prayers do not go up alone, but rather they are purged and the guilt of them is taken away by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And all of their weakness and frailty is remedied by his own perfect 
powerful and efficacious prayers. And as he adds his prayers to our own, they are a sweet savor in the nostrils of God. And they always receive a favorable acceptance. This is not a New Testament understanding of that um, of that ancient rite, uh, or I should say this is not only a New Testament understanding, but David said, let my prayer be set before thee as incense and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Psalm 141, verse 2, where David sees in the offering of incense a, a representation, a physical representation of the spiritual reality of prayer. And not only that, even before the writing of the New Testament in Luke chapter 1, when uh, John's father, Zacharias, goes in to do the service of incense, it said that all of the people of God were gathered doing what? Praying. They were conducting the spiritual reality of what was being symbolically uh, portrayed in the the, uh, holy place. So here we have the, in short, by way of summary, we have the spiritual worship of the church portrayed in uh, symbolic imagery, uh, temple imagery from the old administration. We will talk about these more um, in in my next sermon, Lord willing, which uh, Pastor Sherval will be with you next week. I'll, I'll be in Texas ministering to the saints there, but in two weeks time. I do plan to um, uh, try to enlarge upon the, the incense service and what it teaches us concerning our uh, prayers. And then after that, to return to the harp and the new song and what it teaches us about our service of song and how we are to conduct it. Today, I wanted to take just one doctrine. The proper object of religious worship is the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here I address a a special problem. Probably most of you have bumped into it at one time or another. It's a question that probably has arisen among all sects of Christians. But I hope that most of them have ended up answering it in the right way. But the question does come up from time to time. Is it lawful to pray to the person of the Son of God and to the person of the Holy Spirit? Or should we only pray uh, to God the Father and address his, his person specifically? So here, I'm, I'm attempting to answer this question by, by a doctrine that is actually traced in broader lines. You see, I haven't just said who's the proper recipient or object of prayer. I framed it as the proper object of religious worship because the general proposition does answer the narrower proposition. If God is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the proper object of worship, then the triune God is the proper object or recipient of our prayers. In your outline, I I believe I uh, copied for you Westminster Confession of Faith 21.2. This would be the answer of the Westminster Assembly. Religious worship is to be given to God, 
the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and to Him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creature. And since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other, but of Christ alone. The Westminster Divines here uh, handle several different problems. I wanted to focus upon one of their denials, that there is no other being and certainly no creature that is the proper object of worship. So this is uh, a denial. And then there's an affirmation. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, the triune God is the proper object of worship. When we worship God, sometimes it is true we might hold one or the other of the persons principally in view. That's true and that's legitimate. But not to the exclusion of the other two ever. In other words, our worship is directed to God, who is tri-personal or triune. Sometimes one or the other of the persons is principally in view in our worship, but never to the exclusion of the other two. In the, uh, we're going to be looking, I'm going to try to sketch out for you some of the ordinances of worship and to illustrate how this happens. But the triune God is worthy of honor and adoration and the expression of uh, <coughs> honor and adoration in the ordinances. That is the tripersonal God. And so never one person to the exclusion of the other two. Let me try to give you a couple of examples of this. Consider God's communication to us in our worship. And we should, I might just say, we should learn to think of our um, public assembly and its ordinances as a very personal sort of thing. Not, not merely a formal sort of thing, but God has given ordinances in which he speaks to us. And has given ordinances in which he invites us to respond and speak back to him. It's a relationship. It is a communion. And so the ordinances in which God speaks to us would, of course, be the ministry of the word. Read and preached. We don't have to go very far to realize that this is a communication of the triune God. Yeah, just think of what we read already this morning in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. It is called, this book of the Bible is called the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is speaking to us and revealing to us, which God gave unto him. To show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. It is a revelation that is portrayed in this book as originating in the hand of the Father, delivered to the Son for delivery to his people. And when John wrote it down, he wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this is a communication from the tri-personal God. Peter says, 
For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So here we don't have to go very far to see that the word written and read and then preached is a communication of the tripersonal God to us. It is true that frequently we will focus upon Jesus Christ as prophet and he will have a certain preeminence in the communication to us. It's true. But what I'm trying to point out is that it's never to the exclusion of the other two. It is a revelation that originates in the hand of the Father, delivered to the Son to be revealed through the agency of the Holy Spirit. God also uh, speaks to us and communicates to us in the sacraments and invites us to commune with them. In baptism, our communion with the tripersonal God is right on the face of it. We are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The Lord's Supper is, is a very good uh, illustration of this. Normally at the Lord's Supper, we think of ourselves as having to do uh, most immediately with the Son, with the Lord Jesus Christ. And our union with Jesus Christ is in the foreground, but not to the exclusion of the other two. In our reception of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are receiving that great gift of the Father's paternal love. The Lord Jesus Christ is the natural son of the father. In our union with him, we become the father's adopted children and are gathered around his table with our elder brother. This is also a way that the Lord's Supper is uh, talked about. And in our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, which is in the foreground of the Lord's Supper, we are taught that we are sharers in his one Spirit. So again, union with Christ is in the foreground, but not to the exclusion of the Father and of the Spirit. In our communication to God in the ordinances, in our songs of praise, and I won't be, be long with this, but of course we honor and adore and worship the Father. That's evident upon the face of it but also specifically the Son. You might think of the second Psalm, the 45th, the 110th, the 22nd, and many others. And also we honor and adore the Holy Spirit. In recent weeks, we've had occasion to sing Psalm 139, where the Spirit is glorified for his omnipresence, his omniscience, his constant ministry and attendance toward his people, his sanctifying work, his help in repentance, his leading us in the way of life everlasting. The Spirit is worshipped, adored, and glorified. I've done all of that really to come to this last point, which is our communion with the tripersonal God in our prayers. It is very true that when our normal mode of address in our prayers is to God as Father. And there's a reason for this. There's a reason that the Father is normally in the, in the foreground. 
It's because during our prayers, we are leaning upon the Son and the Spirit for support. And this is why normally the prayers are directed to God the Father, because conceptually we are at the same time leaning upon uh, the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ and the ever-present help and support of the Spirit so that we might pray in a manner that's acceptable to God and so that we might find acceptance. In Confession of Faith 21.3, the Westminster Divines say, Prayer with thanksgiving being one special part of religious worship, is by God required of all men. And that it may, may be accepted, it is to be in the name of the Son, by the help of His Spirit, according to His will, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance, and if vocal, in a known tongue. But you see here, I really wanted to focus upon that it's to be made in the name of the Son. So normally we address the Father in the name of the Son. That is, leaning upon His representation. He's a public person. We trust that He in uh, heavenly places is representing us. So we lean upon Him. We lean upon His name. And we call upon the Spirit to help and assist us. And so it's not surprising that Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, addressed the Father specifically and preeminently and taught them to pray, Our Father. However, in addition to this, note what we have seen in Revelation chapter 5. We've already seen that in Revelation chapter 4, the uh, church did worship and adore God the Father. And there God the Father was preeminently in the foreground in their prayer. But here uh, we see that it's not to the exclusion of the Son as the recipient of prayer. So look again with me at Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. We've come a, we've come a long course, but... But here's the point and the, the clear teaching of Scripture that the Lord Jesus Christ can be addressed directly in prayer because he is God. And is God, God, he is the proper object of our worship. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them hearts and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy. I want you to notice that the Lord Jesus Christ is addressed here immediately in the second person. Thou, O Lamb of God, art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and has made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign upon the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands sang with a loud voice. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain 
to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So I want you to notice that because the Lord Jesus Christ is very God, not only the uh, church, but the angels are portrayed as joining in here and worshiping and glorifying Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. And then in verse 13, all of the creation is then personified and portrayed as also worshiping and adoring Him. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne that is God the Father and unto the Lamb forever and ever and the four beasts said Amen and the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever and there you have a most beautiful presentation that in Revelation chapter 4, the Father was not worshipped to the exclusion of the Son. In chapter 5, the Son is not worshipped and glorified to the exclusion of the Father. But all of creation is portrayed as uh, worshipping and glorifying Him that sateth upon the throne. That is God the Father and the Lamb. And that forever and ever. This is evident upon the face of this text. And really the end of the question and the controversy concerning the proper object of our prayers. Not just God the Father, although we do frequently focus upon him in our prayers, but in that focus it is never to the exclusion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one final point, never to the exclusion of the Holy Spirit, who is also the proper object of our worship and uh, the proper recipient of our prayers. At, um, at the Council of Nicaea in the year 325, the great controversy was over the person of Jesus Christ. So you remember, uh, the Arians had denied the full and proper deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Council of Nicaea ended up with a brief statement about God the Father, we believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. And then a very long statement about the Lord Jesus Christ and his deity. And then interestingly enough, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, period. And then they went on to a series of anathemas. They didn't say very much about the Holy Spirit. That's because uh, the Holy Spirit had not yet become a point of controversy. In the years following uh, the Council of Nicaea, uh, there was a, a group uh, sometimes called the Macedonians, sometimes called the Pneumatomachi. It's a Greek word that means the spirit fighters. There's a fight against the spirit. A group uh, had arisen denying the proper deity and the full deity of the Holy Spirit. They claimed that he, very much like the Jehovah's Witnesses, that he was more of a, an impersonal divine energy or some sort of thing. And so they denied him to be a proper object of worship. They denied his deity. And so in 381 at the Council of Constantinople, they amended the Nicene Creed and enlarged the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. They said, we believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, 
who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. And then they, they go on. But at uh, Constantinople, they asserted and affirmed that the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is the Lord. And as the Lord, together with the Father and the Son, He is worshipped and glorified. The triune God is the proper object of our worship. Well, the question comes, well, how, how do you uh, prove this from the Bible? Because this is something that you will not find very much in the foreground. And I tell you, though, that in spite of the fact that it's not a great focus in the, uh, in the scriptures, where the spirit is portrayed as really being in the foreground as the object of worship. And again, this makes a lot of sense because we are constantly leaning upon the help of the spirit for our worship. In other words, if he doesn't kindle the flame of love and adoration in our hearts, we are, uh, we are candles gone out. But he kindles it and he stirs it up so that we might worship God in spirit and in truth. And apart from him, we are lifeless. So it's not surprising that rarely is he portrayed, uh, is his person portrayed as the object of worship, but rather the great one to worship. But remember, ultimately the object of worship is the triune God, and that includes the Spirit. So that is to say, we call upon the Spirit to help us worship the Spirit. Both. You say, well, how do you know that? How do you know that the Spirit is also the proper object of prayer, no less than the Father and the Son. It is because in the benedictions, blessings are sought from his hand. In, um, you remember that the longest, uh, the longest form of the benediction in the New Testament includes all three persons. Uh, grace be unto you and peace. From the Lord Jesus, or, uh, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. At the end of Second uh, Corinthians, this is the long form where all three persons are mentioned, and benefits are sought from all three persons. If you remember my my teaching on the benediction, the benediction is more than a prayer, but understand this: it is not less. It is more than a prayer and it has more components, but it is not less than a prayer inasmuch as we are calling upon God uh, in, a, uh, in an attitude of reverent neediness and adoration to supply all of our needs according to his uh, riches and glory. So there are other things added to a benediction. For example, it's not just the, uh, the prayer of our hearts. But it is accompanied with a very firm promise. Numbers chapter 6. And you will set my name upon the people of God and I will bless them. So it's not a mere wish. It is a proclamation. That makes it a little bit more than a prayer too. It is a proclamation of blessing upon the people of God. That God has promised to attend with actual blessing. So it is no mere uh, wish. But it's not less than a prayer either, because we are calling upon God to bestow the promised blessings 
even as he has required us to so proclaim it. So once again, we need to go no further than um, uh, than Revelation to see the, the Holy Spirit being addressed in this prayerful benediction. Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness. And the first begotten of the dead. And the prince of the kings of the earth. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I want you to notice, and I read the, the um, not just the benediction, but, but John's following doxology. Doxology is just the language of prayer. Quite literally, that's what it means. It's a, a Greek word. It's the language of praise. I want you to notice once again, Jesus Christ being the proper object of worship as he is praised unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Jesus Christ is the object of worship. And thus uh, the object of prayer. But beloved, from whom do we seek grace and peace in this text? Certainly from the only one that can give it. That is the tripersonal God. God the Father, here portrayed in his Eternity, who is and was and is to come, and from the seven spirits of God, that uh, sevenfold spirit here portrayed in the diversity of his operations and in his distributive character as inhabiting all of the diverse churches of the world. It's, a, it's an interesting question that it raises up. Can the spirit be the proper recipient of our prayers. If we would yet hold fast to the very words of the Bible benedictions, the question would never arise or upon its arising be very quickly answered. Well, of course it is, because don't you remember that just today we sought grace and peace, not just from the father's hand, but from the sons and not just from the sons, but from the Holy Spirit. And you can see why the divines of Constantinople would describe the Spirit as also fully God and also together with the Father and Son worthy of worship and glory. So by way of use, let us not rob our God of His glory by robbing the Son and the Spirit of their just and due worship. And let us now address our triune God in prayer. Let us pray together.